Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, welcome to the session. In this podcast, we will cover the mechanisms of normal labor. Traditionally, when discussing the mechanisms of normal partuition, the three P's were addressed. The three P's are the passenger, which of course is the fetus, the pelvis, which refers to the maternal compartment, and the powers, which reflect urine frequency of contractions and contraction strength. Now, the power of labor or uterine contraction frequency and strength has been revised. For 60 years, the Friedman curve was the foundation of the practice of obstetrics. However, in 2013 to 2014, a universal change in the understanding of labor mechanics occurred. We will cover the revised Friedman curve later in another podcast. In this session, we will cover the passenger, which is the fetus, and the maternal bony pelvis. Okay, well, let's start our podcast focusing on the passenger, the fetus. To assess the potential impact of the fetus on the characteristics of the labor process, it's important that the practitioner be knowledgeable of the basic concepts used routinely to describe how the body of the fetus is located in the uterus. The practitioner should be able to determine the fetal lie, presentation, and position using the maternal vertebral column and the pelvis as reference points. To do this, the Leopold's maneuvers can be employed along with a vaginal examination of the cervix. Let's cover fetal lie next. Using Leopold's maneuvers, fetal lie can be assessed. This is an assessment of the relationship between the fetus and the maternal dorsal column, the longitudinal axis of the human body. If the fetus and the maternal column are parallel to each other, that means on the same long axis, then the lie is termed vertical or longitudinal lie. This is the most common lie of the fetus, of course, in labor. Now, contrary to this is the transverse lie in which the fetus is positioned 90 degrees with respect to the maternal dorsal column. There are variants of these two, of course, which will result in oblique lies. Now, a fetus can be in an unstable or a variable lie when the head is completely unengaged and floating. This situation is seen commonly in cases of severe polyhydramnios and prematurity. The obstetrician should be aware that all fetuses can have a particular type of lie at one point in the pregnancy and another further on in gestation. After 36 weeks of gestation, most fetal lies are vertical or longitudinal lie. Next is the fetal attitude. In addition to having a lie, the fetus has a positional attitude. This is defined as a relation of the various parts of the fetus to each other. This is easiest to understand when we're talking about breech presentation. In the normal attitude, the fetus is in universal flexion. The anatomical explanation for this posture is that it enables the fetus to occupy the least amount of space in the intrauterine cavity. The fetal attitude is extremely difficult 
difficult, if not impossible to assess without the help of an ultrasound examination. Once again, the fetal attitude is easier to understand when talking about a breach, where we can talk about a complete breach, incomplete breach, or a frank breach based upon the attitude of the lie. Okay, in addition to fetal lie and fetal attitude is, of course, the fetal presentation. After the lie of the fetus is assessed, the clinician has to detail the fetus further by describing the lowermost structure of the fetus in the maternal pelvis. This is referred to as the fetal presentation. In a vertical or longitudinal lie, the fetal presentation can be either cephalic or breech. In the transverse lie, the presentation is usually the back or shoulder, or in the oblique lie, it usually is the shoulder or the arm. Now, the cephalic presentation can be further characterized based on the degree of flexion of the fetal head. A well-flexed head is described as a vertex presentation. An incomplete flexion is a syncopate presentation. And a partly extended or a deflexed head is a brow presentation. When there is complete extension of the head, then a face presentation exists. Similarly, breech presentation can be categorized on the basis of the attitude or flexion of the hip and knee joints. If there is flexion at the hip and extension at the knees, the fetus is in a frank breech presentation. If there is flexion at both the hip and the knee joints, the fetus is termed a complete breech. A footling breech has one or both hips and knees in a partial or intermediate extension, and the fetus is sometimes called incomplete breech. All right, we've covered fetal lie, fetal attitude, fetal presentation, but we still have to discuss fetal position. The next step in the assessment of the fetus consists of determining the position of the presenting part. This is a description of the relationship of the presenting part of the fetus to the maternal pelvis. All right, so in the case of a longitudinal lie with a vertex presentation, the occiput, the back of the fetal calvarium, is the landmark used to describe the position. When the occiput is facing the maternal pubic symphysis, the position is termed direct occiput anterior. If the occiput, the back of the fetal head, is between the ischial spines and the symphysis, it is either called a right or left occiput anterior. If the occiput is located halfway between the sacral promontory and the symphysis, the position is termed either a left or right occiput transverse. If the occiput approaches the sacrum, it becomes either a right or left occiput posterior. Now, when the occiput is straight down facing the sacrum, in other words, the baby is looking up, the position is called direct occiput posterior. This method of describing the fetal position can be applied to other presentations by substitution of the vertex for the presenting fetal anatomical landmark. In case of breach, the fetal sacrum is used to determine the position. All right, let's cover some variants of the cephalic presentation, specifically when the baby's brow or the baby's face are presenting. The fetal anatomical landmarks used to describe the position in the brow and face presentations are the bregma and the mentum. The outlook of a persistent brow presentation for vaginal delivery is poor. Approximately two-thirds of brow presentations will convert to vertex or face. Fortunately, this is a rare presentation with an incidence of only 0.05%. Now, if the presentation persists as a brow, a cesarean section should be performed. 
the incidence of face presentation has been quoted at about 0.21% of all deliveries. And now, in the case of face presentation, a vaginal delivery can be accomplished most frequently with a mentum anterior position, but the mentum posterior position will impede the fifth cardinal movement of labor, which is extension. Most fetuses in face or mentum posterior position that do deliver vaginally do so after converting during the internal rotation into a mentum anterior or mentum transverse position. All right, now we have to clarify one special thing about mentum posterior. A fetus in a persistent mentum posterior position could be delivered vaginally if it were very premature or the maternal pelvis was large. Most frequently, this will not be the case. More than 75% of fetuses at term with a mentum posterior position will require delivery by C-section because of labor dystocia. Alright, now let's cover the last part of the fetal characteristics regarding the mechanisms of labor, which is fetal station. In addition to the fetal lie, presentation, and position, the level or station of the presenting part in the maternal pelvis is an important factor in the labor process. Fetal station is graded from minus 5, which is high in the pelvis and non-engaged, to plus 5 when the head is resting at the perineum or crowning. Zero station is when the leading part of the presenting part is at the level of the spines. Now, in a vertex cephalic presentation, this means that the bipyramidal diameter has passed the true pelvic inlet putting the top of the fetal head, the top of the scalp, at the level of the spines. Once again, that is termed engagement or zero station. It can be thought of as minus 5 being 5 centimeters above the level of the spines and plus 5 being 5 centimeters below the level of the spines. Again, engagement means that the widest part of the fetal head in a vertex cephalic presentation has passed through the true pelvic inlet, which is the pelvic brim. All right, next, let's cover the aspects of the maternal bony pelvis. The shape and size of the maternal pelvis has been the subject of significant evaluation and description. Most of the current knowledge on the subject originates by the classic contributions of Caldwell and Malloy. The clinical recognition of the different types of pelvises is important because of their different capacity, obstetric significance, and resulting prognostic importance. In general, there are four major types of maternal pelvises, although there's variance and intermediate forms between the four major types. The four major types are gynecoid, android, anthropoid, and palipoid, or a flat type of pelvic shape. Most of these have to do with the diameter, the width of the pelvic inlet, the size of the mid-pelvis, which is the interspinous diameter, and the pelvic outlet. The most frequently encountered type of maternal pelvis is the gynecoid, followed by the android, the anthropoid, and the least common, the palipoid. There are at least 10 mixed forms consisting of combinations of the anterior and posterior segments of the pure types of the pelvis. Again, these variants have to do with changes or variations between the anterior and the posterior segments of the pure pelvic types. 
In general terms, one could say that the gynecoid and the anthropoid pelvis are favorable for vaginal delivery. Again, that's the gynecoid and the anthropoid, whereas the android and the palipatoid are suboptimal. All right, as we wrap up this podcast, and remember, we'll cover the revision to the Friedman curve or the power which regulates the mechanics of labor in another podcast. Remember, this session dealt with the passenger, the fetus, and the pelvis. Well, these are important as they relate to the cardinal movements of labor, and this will be our last session in this podcast. To accommodate itself to the maternal pelvis dimensions, the fetus must undergo a series of changes in the attitude of the presenting part. This is required for fetal descent through the birth canal. These are called the cardinal movements of labor, and they usually refer to babies in the vertex presentation. Now, even though there are seven distinct cardinal movements, it's important to remember that these are not true separate events. They're all closely related and happen as a continuum. First is engagement. Remember, that is when the vertex is engaged when the bipyramidal diameter is at the level of the pelvic inlet or lower. The leading part is at the level of the spines, which is considered zero station. Then there is descent, flexion, internal rotation, extension, external rotation, followed lastly by delivery, which is expulsion. Once again, the seven cardinal movements of labor are engagement, descent, flexion, internal rotation, extension, external rotation, and then finally, expulsion. A quick word about internal rotation. At the moment of engagement and descent of the vertex into the pelvis, the fetus likely will be in a transverse position. Now, because of the anatomical configuration of the pubococcygeus and the iliococcygeus muscles, the occiput will be forced to rotate to the symphysis pubis. This is the widest area of the pubic floor and will allow for passage of the fetus. Again, that is internal rotation brought about by the pubococcygeus muscles and the iliococcygeus muscles. This allows for the widest area of the pelvic floor to accommodate the fetus. All right, well, in this podcast, we have covered two of the three P's of the mechanics of labor, the fetus, which is the passenger, and the maternal bony pelvis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.